Welcome to the Notion Club podcast. I'm Ian Duncan, and joining me is John Rimmer. John is a neighboring Virginian, lives across the state from me, but we didn't have the fortune of meeting until uh, we ran into each other attending the Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. So now we can both be Virginians and friends and meet up to hike mountains and record podcasts, whereas we were strangers before. So we had a great day today. John brought his family up from Richmond and we hiked Dragon's Tooth on Cove Mountain and just had a great time. But John, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us up, Ian. It's been a long day hiking with how many kids we had Herding. eight it was sort uh, of a herd of children yeah three of which were being well i guess nine kids three of which were being carried one inside mm. my wife's belly <laughs> one on my back and at times two on your <laughs> back and shoulders i did but, that just to shock college students and make them never want to have children because I, I i really don't want most college children <laughs> children to have children <laughs> oh man that's yeah, we did, we did the Lord's work today, then for sure. <laughs> the looks are—they uh, used to bother me, but they—I'm starting to take it as a—I'm doing something right. When right. I get the scornful looks, it's almost like the same look you get when you're not wearing a mask. <laughs> you know, it's just—you uh, just take it and you take it's it a, on the chin for Jesus. And it's a different sort of mask you're not wearing when you have lots of children. That's that's <laughs> that's the bourbon talking right there. <laughs> It's funny, like just the consternation of the uh, the carefully, you know, scripted lives of single people who don't like children, and it's a shock. They need to see it. It's a shock to them, but it's also a kind of the ministry of exposure to children. I would say is what we were doing today. Yeah, the sad thing too is like you're not really trying to rub their nose in it. (laughs) My my desire is I want people to share in the joy, Mm -hmm. and that's really what children are. You know, it's one of those hard fought for joys. It's one of those things that you really have to chew on. And I have a, a mentor of mine. Um, my wife's Filipino and the pastor who brought me to Christ was Filipino. And he used to say this thing. He said that you, when you eat rice, which Filipinos do all the time, and I do all the time, like if you chew it long enough in your mouth, eventually it'll turn sweet because mm-hmm. your mouth's breaking down the complex sugars and the simple sugars. Mm-hmm. And he says that that's the way it is for many of the things that the Lord has for us. There's sweetness in it, but oftentimes it takes a little bit of work to yeah. chew it up. And I think kids are one of the greatest examples of that. They pull you in directions that you would never choose so that you can attain to things that you would never have thought mm-hmm. possible or even maybe necessarily wanted places you never wanted to go. It's that's probably the case with those college students. They just don't yeah. know that there are higher heights and greater joys than this fleeting stuff that they're being sold. And our culture tends to focus on the pains involved and not the pleasures, the great, they're just strangers to the pleasures involved in in being a father and in raising kids. You know, our our culture tends to focus on, you know, the sleepless nights and the the dirty diapers and all this, you know, the things that sitcom television has put forward as the reasons you don't want to have a bunch of kids. And unfortunately, they, they don't know what they're missing out on. But that's kind of a good segue into what we're going to talk about today is is not just fatherhood, but raising raising men. Not just raising boys, but raising men. And that's something that I'm, I'm going to ask for your advice on because you have four boys. 
that are in the process of becoming men. And I have two of my own. And you've your oldest is uh, my oldest right now is ten. Okay. And I've got a set of twins that came right on his heels, so they're nine. Okay. So, so, I so had you three boys have and twice as much experience with boys as I do. So my oldest yeah. is five. Yeah, I um I got a double shot right off the bat. <laughs> um, it's a good way to look at it. Um, we were immediately outnumbered, outclassed, and out of our depth. And you know, going back to what we said, which was a good thing. You went to zone defense immediately. Yeah, we uh, we took our time with having number four, but he uh, he was another boy, obviously. And uh, because he's three years younger than the first three, he's been perpetually at their heels, which means that he turns everything up to eleven. <laughs> He's a, he's a firecracker. He is uh, in many ways Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. Like he is Calvin in many ways, just right, bouncing off the walls, full throttle. Yeah, my, which my kids just love that. By the way, they had a great yeah. time today hiking together and running laps around my in-laws' house, and it was great. Yeah. <laughs> so, what sorts of things would you say you've learned in this regard, or what what things do you think that you and Marianne are doing in a countercultural way? I remember one of my former pastors had a conversation with his wife one time when they had disagreed on a point of discipline with the kids and she felt like he was being too hard on them. And and she was saying, you know, essentially, they're just boys. And he said, well, I'm not raising boys. I'm raising men. I wondered if you could just speak to that in terms of, of what you feel like you're doing differently because we're consciously aiming our boys toward manhood. Yeah, uh, you know, a little bit of my backstory. I'm, I became a Christian in my high school years. I didn't come from a Christian family by anything other than name. And my wife is in a similar boat. We both are um, first-generation Christians. We are pioneering on this in a lot of ways, but we're not trying to fly blind. We've been around the Lord enough to know that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. With our children, we've seen them as gifts and as vital parts of our sanctification. I've learned that with kids... Kids are the accelerant for sanctification. I think that they are a very <laughs> a vital, sacramental means of grace in mm. a Christian's life. You know, I, I'm, I'm not Catholic by any means or anything like that, but I think that there is some inherent wisdom in the fact that marriage is meant to make something out of you. Mm-hmm. Having your wife there to be a mirror, to be a, a fellow image bearer, to be an inheritor of grace with you, right. it makes you see parts of yourself that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And then when the kids come, you know, I thought about it this way. It's like getting married is getting on the interstate of sanctification and <laughs> having children, each one gets you one lane further to the left, yeah. which means that you're going faster and faster and faster until eventually you're in that HOV lane <laughs> with a foot down on the Autobahn. And that's really it. And 10 years in to this project, there's been as much deconstruction mm. for me as a man Mm-hmm. unlearning a lot of a lot of things as part of sanctification but also trying to start things in my son's lives that I didn't have you know yeah. I've I've learned I think the biggest lesson that I've learned um being a father is one you're going to fail at it miserably it's going <laughs> to con- you know you're continually going to feel like you're underperforming yeah. the mark especially That's... when you're yeah around like wise men who have been in the game longer or who you know are grandfathers you know mm-hmm. and it's you know you have to wrestle with sins like envy and those kinds of things. But when you when you settle those kinds of things and you just reckon with the truth of the matter that you're just you're a sinner with a lot of un undealt with sins, depending on where you started in this whole race, 
Doug, Douglas Wilson says this a lot. He says that his father taught him that God doesn't, um, he, he works with you where you are, not where you're supposed to be. Hmm. And with Christians like myself who became a Christian later in life and didn't have a good fatherly influence in my life, my, my mom and dad were divorced before I had any memory of them being together. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing. My dad's been in my life, but you know, a month in the summer, oh, a yeah. week uh, in in the fall type thing. Wow. Phone call every now and then type thing. It's like I, you know, I love my dad. I have no complaints or anything like that. But he's, you know, he's what I was. I mean, mm-hmm. we were we were men of uh, the country of graceless, as John Bunyan would describe Christian. Mm-hmm. That's the town that I came from. Yeah. And I'm learning the ways of this pilgrimage, you know, and I'm learning from men who have walked these roads um, that are alive, but most of them dead, you know, like to me, I've heard a lot. And this used to be my, I would say, and it's, it's probably similar to a lot of guys. It's like, I never had a good example of fatherhood. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what you're going to say to yourself all the time with mm-hmm. all your failures. But I've come to recognize that, man, you don't have that excuse yeah. because we have mountains of mountainous men to look back on. Mm-hmm. The scriptures are full of them. Christian biographies and church history are full of them. I mean, there are faithful fathers, you mm-hmm. know, and we are inheritors. We are we are men who are part of that family lineage now. Mm-hmm. I've I've been humbled to be a dad because you mess up a lot. Right. It's interesting. It's it's encouraging to hear you say that because fatherhood does feel like a series of failures, some bigger than <laughs> others. You know, and yeah. it feels everything everything you do. You're trying to do so many different things. It's sort of like I'm failing at everything to some degree. Nothing is being done perfectly. Surely this can't be ideal. I think a lot of fathers probably feel that way. Yeah, and it's definitely a, it's, it's a continual feeling. I mean, the gospel is the reality of your sins, and then there's a lot of sins that, like you know, we started this conversation saying that marriage starts to reveal things you didn't know. Yeah, and with the kids, every single kid brings more things to light that you didn't know about because these kids are facets of you and they're going to bring out yeah (laughs) when you come face to face with like your attitude issues your narcissism your your pride and arrogance or your laziness goodness gracious that's that's one that stares me in the face constantly um Mm -hmm. lack of discipline lack of self-control all these sins that you know it's like oh i've i've defeated a potty mouth and I've defeated uh, lust in my life or I've defeated, you know, all these these giant sins. And then you realize that they're not really the giant ones. They're just the ones that like to parade their iniquity out in, in, in the public. Yeah. It's all these hidden ones down in deep that don't come out until you're really surrounded by people that you love deeply and that you're responsible for. Yeah. And that responsibility really brings out the stewardship aspect of fatherhood. You know, these children are given to you and you're expected to shepherd them Mm. by god you are expected to raise them they're given to you they are your children but ultimately they belong to their creator and you're expected to give them these things and that's that's where it really kind of like jabs you that's where calling yeah i mean the calling is so intensely high it's sort of it reminds me of the you know, be holy as I am holy, you know, be holy because your God is holy. And that, I mean, it's such a, it feels like being called to an insurmountable task and and fatherhood often for me feels the same way. And yet it's better to do it imperfectly than not to do it at all out of some sort of fear of failure. 
Yeah. You know, but what what are some ways that you feel like you're trying to inculcate masculinity? Like what are some of the things that you're doing with your boys because you're aiming them towards manhood rather than boy you're not settling for boyhood. What what sorts of strategy is there? Some of these targets are things that I guess there are big targets and then there are like daily targets. Mm-hmm. You know, your kids are gonna come in seasons, especially your boys. At some days, it's I need you to make sure that your dirty clothes end up in the hamper, right? Rather than scattered about the house like they're you know like a plane wreckage or something. Mm-hmm. It's things where I think the if you had to narrow them down into a few catchwords, I'd say self control is a big one mm-hmm. because men are given the gift of strength, right. power. Mm. You know, we're expected to be heads of households. Right. That's the, what we're aiming for, and that assumes what um, you know. Someone said that God has given governments to men. There are three spheres. This is the Kyperian thing. Right. But for any man to exercise leadership in any of these realms, he must first exercise leadership in himself. Right. Self-government comes before yeah, all. Yeah, self-government the is the key. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're really trying to teach your kids is like, hey, you know, you are going to lose your temper. You got to learn to control that. Mm-hmm. You are going to not want to do things because you're lazy. You got to learn to overcome that. Yeah. You're going to want, you know, selfish ends. You're going to want, you know, all of these sinful temptations that are, you know, inherent in what we gave our kids through our sinful nature. We're yeah. going to teach them self-control because we're aiming for they are going to be fit for governing. Mm-hmm. I think that another one um, that's really important uh, would be uh, responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's similar in a lot of ways because, you know, to be responsible for something assumes that they're they're taking ownership. Right. And that's really, you know, like if you look at society, I, I, um, I'm a maintenance guy. That's kind of what I've been doing um, mm-hmm. my whole life um, is just basically picking up after other people. Yeah. I've been listening to uh, a guy named Theodore Dalrymple lately, and he wrote this book called Life at the Bottom. And... What I recognize by listening to his book, Life at the Bottom, and basically he writes it from the perspective of he's in the medical profession in in the UK, and he's just basically writing the stories of people who come into his ward, and he notices patterns. He is able to group that these, you know, certain, you know, society has made all these weird excuses for people when he sees that really the problems are just people refuse to take responsibility for their own actions. They have basically therapeutized everything or they've passed off everything as this is somebody else's fault, not my own. Right. I'm an addict. It's a emasculating thing. Right. Yeah. Huge emasculating thing in our society is to look to others to initiate, look to others to resolve, look to others to act. Yes. Like one of the the most basic things of being a, a man is to be an initiator, to act. You know, God acted in creating, man acts in procreating, but so many men are being taught not to act. Let others do for you. Let the government send you a check. Let someone else fix your problem or blame it on someone else instead of taking responsibility. Like that's such a huge part of being a man. Absolutely. Yeah. Another quote that has kind of helped chisel these things out is that authority flows to those who take responsibility. Mm. Try to teach my kids, if you see something that needs to be done, step in and do it. Right. You know, don't wait for somebody to tell you to do it. You know, like I'm going to do that until you get the point that, hey, this is not going to do itself. These chores, these needs, this homework, etc. It's not going to take care of itself. You have to take 
take the challenge and to take it almost as a challenge. Like that's a big thing with the kids as well is like, you know, you want them to see life as something that's engaging, Mm -hmm. something that's um, exciting, something that is not, you know, safe necessarily in in terms of um, where everything is just boring. Yeah, yeah. You want them to feel like there's there's reasons to go after these these goals that we set in front of them. You know, it's not a, you know, we're not just doing this because we want them to be sensible people when they grow up. No, right. we want them to be radically able to alter the shape of the universe. Right. You know what I mean? Turn the world upside down. Yes. I mean, men have so much to offer. I've spoke to youth groups before and, and tried to tell, try to explain to the men what, what it does to a culture. And, you know, like, just look at a culture after a major war, like look at the United States after World War II, when you had an entire, almost an entire generation of young, strong, the best, the strongest, the the most courageous men wiped out whole communities, just deprived of fathers, of sons, brothers, of, of husbands. And, and that that is a type of poverty not to have men men have so much to give they have so much and that you were talking earlier about that that the strength that needs to be under control mm-hmm. but that strength is so much of what men have to give in protecting and in providing and in leading you know men have these gifts to give if they could only give them without those gifts being becoming destructive you know it's like the fire the fire that will warm you or burn your house down yeah and i think that you want these kids to be self-controlled you want to be responsible but i think the biggest thing in our home has been we want to impart our children with the gospel Mm -hmm. you know the fact that christ came to save Mm -hmm. them you know to come and to to be the, the the king of their lives, to be the savior of them, to bring them out of all these things. Like the biggest thing for my wife and I is that we feel so blessed to bring them into the world in a place where from before they ever, you know, drawn their first breath, man, they have been in a mm-hmm. thoroughly biblically, yeah. you know, gospel saturated world. Mm-hmm. You know, like the people that they know and love, the shape and character of their life and schedules, everything mm-hmm. that we've done as a family has been centered around what Jesus has accomplished in the gospel and what he has called us to do through the gospel. In becoming a Christian, when the Lord called me into his family, there was an immediate identification with the previous generations, the people of the scriptures. You know, I understood that I had an attachment to Abraham. Hmm. That was more than just Abraham was a was a was a guy who did good things. You should do good things like Abraham. Mm-hmm. No, it was more like no, you you are connected to him by faith. You mm-hmm. are one of the the seed that yeah. he was promised. You have the faith of that man, you, you know, and you are in the lineage of him. With Abraham. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And with my children, I want them to understand the story of what God has been doing from creation and what he has intended to do up to his son. And what his son has accomplished in the cross and the yeah. resurrection and the ascension right. and the unfolding new heavens and new earth that we're in now and their part to play in this. And really, I mean, Christ is the most masculine actor of all. He's the one mm-hmm. who entered into Absolutely. the world of his own volition when there was no, you know, like the prophets talk about this, when there was no man, there was no other man, there was no avenger, there was no deliverer, yeah. there was no redeemer to be found. And he, he became the Redeemer and entered in and, and accomplished 
salvation in a very willful and he set his face toward Jerusalem. I mean, it's the most masculine motif I can imagine. Yeah. You know, he goes to the cross willingly to die there to redeem his bride, his people. I mean, it's the most masculine heroic story of all time. Absolutely. So what what better savior to hold up for your boys than this Christ who, you know, and and that I feel like everything we're saying is somehow countercultural because there has been an attack on the masculinity of Christ. You know, he's been made milk toast. He's been made pale and weak and effeminate. And we're talking about raising men who are vigorous and strong and, and self-controlled. Like, and there's this whole thing, of course, of toxic masculinity. The idea that masculinity basically is toxic is what our culture is trying to Absolutely. say. And this, you know, we were talking about this earlier uh, in the Kroger parking lot. Actually, was you were saying you you were making the point that it's not so much that uh, culture seems to be trying to make men effeminate as it is to make them androgynous. Yeah, that's right. And I thought that was a really interesting point because it does seem it's like you can be whatever you want. Just we don't want you to be this dangerous sort of wild man. That's yeah. that's what we're trying to put out. It's like the monster outside the town that we're going to have to just kill that because we don't we can't live knowing that's out there. Yeah. And, and masculinity think, is that dangerous thing. Yeah. Culture has this weird way like if you look back in the, you know, the wreckage of human history, it's it's not unfounded. I mean, masculinity has been a terrible force for for horrible things. And masculinity, what we mean by that, obviously, is masculinity under under the shadow of the fall, mm-hmm. under Adam the first. Right. We see all of the ravages of that. You know, as he passed on his sin nature to all of us. You know, and to right. see that when it comes to blossom. When we see when it comes to blossom, not only in individual lives, but in societies as a whole, through the war, the bloodshed, the ideas, all these kinds of things. But when you brought up earlier about Christ, we see that Christ comes in to be the second Adam, to reverse the works of the first. Absolutely, He's the one to come to show us what an actual man is meant to be. Not that men are irrelevant, or men and women, there's no distinction, that androgyny is the way forward. Mm -hmm. No, he shows us that mankind had a very specific and particular purpose Mm -hmm. that was redeemed in Christ, and that... As Ephesians says, like when you look at the church, the bride of Christ, you know, like the church as a whole is given a feminine, you know, disposition to her Lord. Right. But we see that even in that church, as you set up a hierarchy of pastors and prophets and elders and all these kinds of things, and them imparting to the saints the workings that accomplish sanctification in the lives of the church, you see that, as it says there, I think it's in Ephesians 4 that. The purpose of us is that we would all achieve to the measure of maturity, which yeah. is true manhood, which is Christ. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we're coming into something that has been hidden from creation since the fall of Adam, mm. but was revealed in Christ. And now, as it says in Romans 8, the creation itself is just longingly groaning yeah. to see these men coming to be. Absolutely. You know? Because it's for the good of all people and of all things, you know. Yeah. It's they're all being reconciled and brought brought to one in Christ. Yeah. What do you think are the best parts of masculinity? You know, our our culture. I feel like there's been a secular attempt to restore masculinity. It's been in 
is the art of manliness uh-huh, type thing. Like uh-huh. we suddenly we all want to wear flannel shirts and have big beards and like you see secular society trying to compensate, trying to swing the pendulum back in the other direction. Like the the attempt yeah. to to bring back some masculinity and almost to carve out a little place to we want to be a man, so we're gonna have some man time in the man cave and you know like culture is like you can go right here and be a man and no further yeah you know you want to be a man then go join the army and blow stuff up but when you get back you have to do things our way so or men you can play football if you want to be a man or you know like men have these certain areas where you can still be men and other than that you're basically not allowed to be a man anymore yeah. So how do we redeem the best parts of of masculine? Pass that on to our sons. Like how do we, how do we instill the good parts without becoming cliched in the sort of, you know, like let's all be men, boys. You know, not that right. You know, that's necessarily wrong, but that can be shallow when it's done without the depth of theology that we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One thing that I feared in seeing, you know, I don't know how busy it is nowadays, but the manosphere and that whole movement. Oh yeah thing that was spoken of like uh pickup culture the MGTOWs was basically as the manosphere fell apart and the MGTOWs like men going their own way mm-hmm. basically who are rejecting uh marriage rejecting you know women as anything more than playthings, rejecting the responsibility we see what this faux masculinity this mm-hmm. this gruff tough you know like all those things you described you know like the workout culture this this weird religion of um i don't want to pick on crossfit but you know what i mean it's yeah, it's yeah. all these guys who are all about fitness all about performance all about discipline you got to you know, try to look like the he-man figure you absolutely have as a kid. yeah let's yeah. you know let's let's do all of these these external markers of masculinity but at mm. at the same time it's like as those things matriculate and as you look downstream of them, you see the same problems just in a different direction. You know, mm-hmm. like we talked about earlier that when you look back on the smoking ruins of history, that's the kind of masculinity that causes those things. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at when you look at Nazi Germany, I'm reading a book right now called All the Light We Cannot See, and it's a it's an interesting mm-hmm. look. One of the characters in it is a young boy who's going through the Hitler Youth Movement. Mm-hmm. And you just see how that that whole thing, there was so much camaraderie and there was so much, you know, just esprit de corps yeah. that was wrapped up in it. And it didn't matter how wicked the ends were for the boys because to mm-hmm. them, this, this touched a nerve of something yeah. that was real. They wanted to be masculine and this was their way of doing that it felt like they were recovering something i'm sure yeah it did it it gave them this like an anti-masculinity in uh-huh. a sense and i mean anti in the sense of you know like instead of you know like right, an anti-christ right. is not like someone who's mm-hmm. opposed but it's someone who's in place of like it's it felt yeah. like masculinity and it tasted like masculinity but really it was a different type of absolutely thing. and i think that that boils down to is like what you see missing mm-hmm. when you look at jesus you see those things. You see him uh, being brave, right. strong, assertive. You see him being a leader. You see him uh, doing a lot of the things that we would say, you know, yes, this is this is this is what we need more of in our society. We need less passivity. All these kinds of things. But what you also see in him, you see in a, in a willingness to take on responsibility. You see a willingness, and that means responsibility for other people. Yeah. 
you know, when Jesus uh, takes on the sins, not of himself, he's not taking responsibility for anything he did wrong. He's taking responsibility for what we did wrong, mm-hmm. for what his bride did. Yeah. You know, he takes that responsibility on himself so that he might cleanse his bride, but also lead his bride. Mm-hmm. It says in Ephesians, you know, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and we're to sanctify her by the washing of the word. Right. Sanctifying the whole concept of bringing her up into something more something better you know your wife is is beautiful and glorious on her wedding day Mm. but a true man a husband she's going to be more glorious 20 years in than she was on that day she's going to make the the girl on that day look like a a pencil-headed like little (laughs) girl man you know like she's going to be an elegant woman a fruitful vine she's going to be a blessed woman who is surrounded by the fruits of her hands she's going to be the kind of woman that has a a gravity and a, a weight to her that is amazing. That would make any feminist today just shake in her boots. Yeah. You know, it's not this kind of, you know, like the feminists are running after this faux masculinity in another way too. They mm-hmm. want to be the head of things. They want to do things. In yeah. a lot of ways, you see this faux masculinity and the feminist movement kind of grasping at this, the mm-hmm. same brass ring. Right. And both of them are missing the point of both callings hmm. you know that's a good point and then true masculinity brings out it, it makes everything around it better yeah. it makes femininity better it makes children better it makes societies better it think, makes vocations better i think you're talking about husbandry in a, in a mm, sense that yeah i think we that's it's good. now strange to us that we're not an agricultural society fathers are not you know one of the the series of books that we're reading to our kids at, at bedtime every night is little house on the prairie mm-hmm. which are canceled of course oh, because yes, you know horrible talk, oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but husbandry like agriculture like fathers taking their their kids as apprentices and saying look son here's how you care for horses here's how you train a team of oxen to lead here's how you plant corn here's how you take care of a farm here's how you you care for something so that it becomes greater and more productive and more beautiful like like the same way you care for a wife and now in our culture like what on earth are we caring for yes like you go to you go to the grocery store and buy food you don't have to care for anything maybe take care of your car or something but it's all just so selfish there's no service there's no giving of yourself in service of a piece of land or a farm or uh, in some sort of cultural endeavor of some sort. And so there's no vineyard, you know, in the mm-hmm. biblical sense. Uh, and But what you're talking about is part of being a man is being a leader and being a leader in sanctification and also a husband, husband man in the old world sense of a man who takes care of other things animals people absolutely it's not a mistake i mean it's not it's not an accident that those terms are one and the same people almost say them without giving any acknowledgement to where it came from and why it was used why it was chosen and it's strange like you can't talk about one of these things without talking about all of them when you talk about Mm -hmm. taking responsibility for something for working a piece of property I mean, you and I know, like you doing your business, me doing mine. When you work with your hands on something, you have a closeness with it. It just grows up. The more time you invest in something, the more sense of ownership you have. And then with that, the more concern you have for it. So, for instance, I I have an old jalopy of a car that I have basically taken apart and put back together piece by piece over the years to keep it running, to keep my family on the road. It is not a beautiful vehicle. 
it's a very functional and reliable vehicle mm-hmm. but i love that thing yeah you know i don't want to get rid of it even though i kind of have to since we have another kid coming and we've outgrown it <laughs> yeah. but it's because a sense of that ownership like yeah. there's an investment in it you know and that ownership gives me an attachment to it it gives me yeah. a concern for it and this is we're talking about a 3000 pound piece of steel yeah yeah it's there's this it's is... nothing it's just a thing and when you abstract this out further into homes neighborhoods yeah. careers the politics of your local community uh-huh. the educational system that your children and their friends and their neighbors are involved in yeah. these kinds of things you know, it's like being a man means that, you know, to be a leader doesn't necessarily mean that you're in charge. Like you're the big kahuna. It means that you're just first. Yeah, it's not a man with his feet up on the desk and right. a cigar in his mouth and laughing at his minions. Like being a man is more like a, the farmer going out to check on the cows or going out to see if the the seeds are sprouted, that sort of thing, because it's it's you're caring for something and it's your role to care for them. You know, you and I are a couple of blue-collar guys, and I feel like that's what qualifies us to have this sort of blue-collar epiphany. You know, it takes a blue-collar guy to appreciate the craftsman-like way of you appreciate your car and the tools that you use to work on it. And, you know, this we're talking about getting your hands dirty on a farm in service of something else. And marriage requires, and fatherhood requires this type of blue-collar epiphany that it's up to you to care for this. Yeah. And giving yourself in service of that is a good thing. It's it's actually better than being constantly served and catered to and waited on hand and foot. Giving of yourself in the service of a thing is a type of pleasure that I, I fear that a lot of people never get to because they're privileged beyond it. Like, well, I don't have to take my car apart or I don't have to work hard or I don't have to sweat, you know, or I don't have to do. And then they wonder why nothing means anything to them. That's that's a great point. You know, like, well, I'm just depressed because nothing means anything. Well, maybe (laughs) maybe you just need to have some more blue collar type experiences (laughs) because it makes things very meaningful. Exactly. You reap what you sow. Yeah. You know, and that that whole analogy assumes that Mm -hmm. what you put in through your work. Yeah. is what you're going to get out of it. And yeah. God's not mocked. God has made the world a certain way, and mm. it's going to operate along those lines. That's yeah. the thing about marriage and children. Marriage and children, it doesn't matter what religious persuasion you are. The further into that you get, it has a gravity to it that pulls you in a certain way. Yeah. And you can be the worst father in the world, but I guarantee that even the worst will have a measure of that image of grace in their life in the sense that it'll it'll force them into a certain concern for their offspring Mm -hmm. a certain jealousy for their wife a certain responsibility for you know feeding their children and you could be the worst guy in the world and still those things are going to touch you at some level and you know if you take the analogy in the other direction towards the good side of it it's such a refining thing i mean Mm -hmm. We were talking about this earlier. I remember before I was married, I was all over the place. I, as a as a young man, you have ambitions, you have desires that pull you in a thousand directions at once. You have so many irons and so many fires. It's so hard to say no to opportunities. Or on the flip side, it's so hard to find opportunities because you don't necessarily know what to do. It's like 
It's like standing in front of an infinite selection and being told to make a choice on what you want on, mm. on what you want to select. It's very hard to do. But when marriage comes, it makes life simpler in the sense that your choices are narrowed. And then as the children come, it does that even further. And at first, it feels like you are basically dying. You're losing (laughs) your life, you know, in the biblical sense. Like everything has come to a halt. You don't exist. (laughs) Only the only way that you do is is in the service of these blood-sucking little <laughs> urchins that demand your attention 24-7. Yeah. Um, I must you know, diminish. And uh, if, if my children listen to this, I just want to <laughs> tell you guys, you guys aren't blood-sucking urchins, at least not anymore. <laughs> the disclaimer. That's the disclaimer for the world We don't out see there. you as the face-sucking octopus of, of childhood. That, yeah. That's like, I think that's sort of how college students think. Yeah, that, to kind of round that analogy back to where I wanted to, wanted it to go is that it's actually the opposite. It feels that way, but really what's happening is that God is putting weights on you to form muscles. Yeah, You're becoming the kind of man that you would have wanted to be, Absolutely. but you have no means of getting there. You yeah. can't do, quote-unquote, pull-ups to, to get yourself into that kind of shape. Yeah. The only kind of weight that makes that kind of... You need to have a life and death soul put in your hands and being told that their eternity and their the entirety of their existence depends on what you put into them Mm. you know you you as their parent will have more influence on this eternal soul than anybody else that will ever touch it save the lord jesus christ that kind of weight and responsibility does something to you Mm. instantly at the moment when you see your child but also progressively as they develop and the weight of their maturity rests on you. And that is from where we sit on this side of grace in the gospel, that becomes an unfolding of God's grace to us. It makes us into the kind of people that we so desperately want to be. The guys that we read about in these books became those kind of men because they had families and children. They had those, those, I wouldn't say lesser weights, because it's really not like, but it was those more focused weights. Hmm. You know, when God gives men government, he gives you a little, he gives you a wife and mm-hmm. tells you to shepherd her. He gives you children and tells you to shepherd them. Mm-hmm. And you look at scripture, look at how scripture unfolds, the qualifications to be an elder in a church, to be even a deacon in a church. They all require that, first of all, you've got your house in order. If you don't have your house in order, you mm-hmm. need not apply. Okay, and if you go to a church where the pastor doesn't have his house in order, you need to apply elsewhere. Right. Because that's what the scriptures say, and it says it for a reason. Hmm. Because this is how God makes and and measures men by the responsibilities that he's given to them. Yeah, it moves from the lesser to the greater. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Like my backstory, I, I was involved in a church plant that I'm still involved in to this day. But when I first was involved, I was involved as a teaching elder. I, I was a pastor there. I was just married. I had no children. You know, it, it was one of those things where, you know, for the time, it, it just, I realized over time that I was way out of my depth. So it wasn't until until I realized that I was coming up short with my own children, I was not fit to be where I was at. That, you know, and and I don't mean that in terms of, you know, there would never be an, an opportunity in that in that direction, but just realizing that you're, you know, you're just not ready for this yet. Mm-hmm. This is a much bigger calling than you, you know, it wasn't just getting up there and preaching sermons and that yeah. kind of stuff. That's not pastor. what it means to be a pastor. You got to be a pastor in your home before you're ready to be a 
past anyone else's absolutely past. Yeah, yeah it's like how do i deal with discipline with people when i don't even know how to discipline my own two-year-old son isn't it amazing there's yeah. some of the roles that we've covered just in the last 45 minutes talking about masculinity being a man means being a pastor being a, being a man means being a husband a husband man a caretaker a protector a provider a, a soldier in some ways being a man is all these different things it's it's this is a daunting task and i think some people might might be surprised that you know we're we're talking about all these heavy duty things that we want to instill in our sons and mine oldest is five and your oldest is 10 i think you know and that's that seems normal to us now because of the way we're thinking you know, I'm watching you on the trail today talking. One of your kids got in a funk and you're you're sitting them down to talk about, you know, you're quoting scripture to them about their attitude. And I'm talking to my kids about controlling their emotions. And this is, I'm talking to a four-year-old. You know, that's strange to our culture. I think a lot of culture's idea of raising boys is like coddle, coddle, coddle. Coddle, 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 coddle. And to get about like 16, they're like, all right, hold on. We got to talk about responsibility. You're about to drive a car. <laughs> and, then, and then it's like, all right, it's game on. You know, that's not how you instill. You start from the cradle. I've got a quote here. And, and this is a book that's been influential to both of us. And, and I think you've read it. You, you said four or five times. Yeah, at least. And my wife, uh, I'd probably add two or three more on there. Yeah, this is Future Men by Douglas Wilson. One of the things he says in chapter one is that manhood is where boyhood should be aimed. That's what we're yeah. that's what we're about. We're not we're not gonna mess around and pretend like there's a switch on the wall that says time to be a man, and I'm gonna flip that when they get into the teens. Some so this time to start instilling these concepts and these ideas and these these disciplines and these values from the get go. Absolutely. Or else it's just not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Being a man is, is setting trajectories for younger men, whether they be your own sons or as in the Great Commission, we're making disciples. Mm. We're, we're trying to set trajectories. We want people to be aiming towards things. We want those ends to be not just lofty goals, but we want them to be mm. goals that our Lord has set. Because ultimately, yeah. that is the goal. We want to serve Him. We want to teach them to obey all that He has commanded us. We want to be pleasing in His sight, doing what He would call us to do. We want the nations to come to Him. We want to see the joy of all peoples, you know, being in submission to Jesus. Mm. And with that in mind, like when you look at a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a ten-year-old or a thirty-year-old, you know, that you have led to Christ, it's all about setting their minds in a direction hmm. you know you deal with them where they are but you always aim them yeah. you know towards something you want them to be recognizing that we're not trying to make you self-controlled for its own sake we're not right. trying to make you disciplined so that you can be the best football player ever some abstract virtue absolutely because yeah. these things can be aimed you know, all of these great goals of manhood can be aimed at an infinite number of targets. Mm. And that's the problem throughout history. Mm. Where we've aimed masculinity in the past is the problem. We have not aimed it at being glorifying to our God and creator. Amen. And that was the intended goal. And that's why we've never seen manhood achieve what mm. it was meant to do except for in the person 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think it's interesting you talk about trajectory and maybe even unconsciously we're talking about aiming things. And, you know, one of the recurring themes in Scripture is that children are like this quiver full of arrows. Arrows are aimed. Arrows have trajectory. Arrows are fired with a purpose at a target to accomplish. Yeah, that's and, great. And, you know, I think people think of as a quiver full of arrows as sort of a static thing. Like, you just have a lot of something cool. No, it's, it's a useful thing. You're going to use it to fire at the target, to win the battle, yeah. to win the war. That's what children are for. Children are to win the war. We're at war. Kids are weapons to be honed and fired for effect. Absolutely. You know, and how do you think you're going to win this war that we're in if you're not raising godly men Absolutely. to fight? So that's what we're about. In that analogy, you get to use all of the fun metaphors. <laughs> you know, masculinity is meant to be dangerous. Yeah. You know, I see that come up a lot in conversations about mm-hmm. manhood. What people are afraid of is the fact that men are dangerous, but the reality is you want dangerous men. Yeah. When you're in a bind, you don't want a soft man. Absolutely. You want a hard and dangerous man. Absolutely. But that danger is tethered to all of the other things that make him a man, which are what we've talked about over Mm -hmm. and over. Discipline, self-control, sacrifice, love, generosity, courage. These kinds of things make the Mm -hmm. fact that he is dangerous a encouraging thing to the people around him a thing that makes them feel safe Mm -hmm. secure taken care of it makes them bold it makes them feel like good will prevail because good men do not sit back and take it on the shin good men actually point themselves in the direction of accomplishing and and thwarting evil like they want to stop evil from happening what a comfort that that strength under control is i had an interesting situation when i was Mm. stranded in seattle for a few days and i was walking around the streets late at night just out of out of boredom and i was like oh man this might actually not be safe and (laughs) to be walking around (laughs) seattle at night and then i realized you know i'm a lumberjack from appalachia i am the most dangerous thing out here (laughs) right now but you know, it's like I tell I tell that to my daughter. Sometimes she's like she's afraid of this or that. I'm like, honey, daddy is the scariest thing here, and I'm I'm here to protect you. You know, and that's that's what being a man is about. It's about the danger of of being uh, power under control. Absolutely, power to that that that's goodness under control. You know, it's like Aslan the lion, but he's yeah. a good lion. That's you right. know. That's what being a man is about. And that's meekness. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see in Christ. Meekness is power under control. The meek shall inherit the earth. And you know why they do? Is because they have power. Yeah. And they have it under control, which means that they have it in a certain direction, which is inheriting the earth. It's not a force uh, that is out of control, like a wildfire burning out of control. It's the... It's the fire of a furnace that's forging the industries of the future. You know, it, it's a progressive, and if we can use that, if we can redeem that term for a minute, we you know, need to. <laughs> we totally. Yeah. It's a build. It's things that are being built and things that are being blessed, things that are being warmed by that fire, that that passion. You know, the word cherish in Ephesians. Since we're talking about Ephesians, to cherish your wife is to keep her warm. You know, like right. men have this burning power, this burning influence, but it's it's to be it's a constructive influence, not a destructive influence. It's such a an amazing calling, not just to be a man, but to 
to create new men. And um, congratulations to you certainly on on having four wonderful young boys. It's, it's been a pleasure to get to know them this weekend and and uh, see them on the mountain hiking together. And and just I really appreciate your your perspective as a dad. And it's it's been great to to talk about masculinity with you and. I'm sure that's going to be a continued uh, inspiration to me in raising boys. And I'm sure we'll have more conversations about, you know, how do you raise dangerous men and, and, and manage to get them to survive? You know, that's been a, that's been a big thing for me is, is treading that line between protecting, but also letting them learn to be men, to get the bumps and bruises and learn to be tough. Yeah, it will be a long conversation because it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't claim to have anything figured out. I'm figuring it out, but I am I keep looking towards men who did. Like, I, I love seeing examples of men who are not only successful fathers themselves, but had successful fathers before them, where you mm-hmm. see this pattern of legacy Yeah, because legacy. that is the promise that we have in the scriptures. You mentioned that earlier yes. about when you read an autobiography, you, you had said that in a conversation we had around a campfire earlier that you you really always look for, you know, you might be reading a biography about some famous missionary or some other luminary, but you're looking for who was this guy's dad That's and right. how did he raise, I thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah. Because none of us stand unto ourselves. Yeah. What good is it to be a great father to have terrible sons? I mean, think mm-hmm. about all the people in scripture where we see that pattern, you know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because legacy is really what we're after. When you look at Abraham and you look at his sons and you look at David and his sons and you look mm-hmm. at all of these lineages, the tragedy is that these lineages all peter out. But when we get to Christ and we see that the lineage that comes as mm-hmm. him, it says that he stands forth as the head of a new race. Yeah. And this lineage is one where we see the father extending his mercies to a thousand generations of those who love God and are called yeah. to him. You know, when you look at that kind of thing, there should be this pattern that we see. And, and mm-hmm. when I'm trying to find men to emulate, men to really listen to, which is people who have sealed their faithfulness with their own deaths and their children are continuing in the faith and their grandchildren and on and on that there is impacts and not even just their physical lineage, but also their spiritual lineage. You know, a man's church that falls apart when he steps out of the pulpit to me Hmm. is an, is a failure in some senses, you know, and Mm -hmm. that should be taken into account as we evaluate his ministry. Not in all points, but in many, because there should be something that exhibits not that man's glory, but the glory of the one that he served. Because the gospel has promised things that will happen because the gospel is the truth. You know, and that's what we should be looking for. That's what we should be patterning ourselves after. And Mm. as we continue to rub up against the failures of reality, the failures of, you know, whatever stressful situation our kids and our marriage might put into our lives, let us apply ourselves to finding answers in those men who stood well. It's the same pattern we see in Hebrews 11. This hall of faithful witnesses that are standing over us, that have finished the race, Mm. and are cheering for us to do the same. Absolutely. That's where we got to look, man. That's where we got to look. Look to the stands. Absolutely. And that really brings us back to the beginning. You were talking about, you know, your past and how you and your wife are both first-generation Christians, and you didn't have this sort of parenting from you know your family and you didn't have this sort of upbringing essentially and that's that's the irony of what we're talking about the grace that's that's available to us in christ that you can begin 
this yeah. legacy from from nothing like sort of a, a ex nihilo legacy and yet we know the value of fathers passing this on from father to son father to son but like if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have that kind of legacy the grace that's offered to you in Christ and in the church is that you can begin it you can be Absolutely. generation 1 and start this now like yeah. there is this is not like inheriting you know, uh, being a landed royalty in in Britain in the in the 1600s, like you can start this. Yeah. You can start. You don't. No one has to hand this to you. Your grace in Christ is that you can have this, and and you can you can start this legacy for yourself and for your own sons, and you can start to pass it down. Absolutely, we are wild olives that have been grafted in absolutely and the fruitfulness is on god's account you know god is he is responsible for the fruitfulness we are responsible for the faithfulness to what he's called us to so you know i mean just think about that analogy you 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 plant something or you graft something in you're not expecting an exceedingly bountiful harvest right off the bat. It's mm-hmm. going to take time and that's the thing that god teaches us and he teaches us not to expect it in years but in generations yeah you know think about that in terms of when you look at your sons don't just see what you're attempting to do but see what god is attempting to do Mm. god didn't choose me and my wife out of our families and redeem our family lines just for for no end he loves my family he loves my parents my siblings my cousins aunts uncles Mm. he loves them and he wants to show them the grace that he extends to all nations and all peoples through our lives. We, we're just pictures of his grace. We're not exceptional. We didn't apply for this and get selected. Mm. You know, we didn't um, earn this standing, like you said. We, we didn't yeah. you know, work up to a certain sum and then buy our way into this. No, we yeah. were selected by a God that we hated, didn't want anything to do with, we grew up in a place where his name was not on our lips. Adopted. We, we were, were adopted. adopted. We were called out of darkness yeah. into light. And that's and and again, to, to quote it again, God doesn't take you from where you should be. Mm-hmm. He takes you from where you are. And he works from there. You know, and that's the glory of the gospel. Mm-hmm. The gospel is the good news that he redeems sinners. That is good news. Yes. And that includes men who are meant to be husbands and fathers and to be disciple makers, whether that be through their church, their vocations, whatever it might be, whatever your hand touches, you know, wherever your foot goes, God is expecting to work through you for his ends. Amen. What are a couple of titles, and we already mentioned Future Men by Douglas Wilson, but what are a few other books on that you have found on parenting that you could recommend to some of the some of the parents out there that might be listening the scriptures have to be number one and when i say the scriptures there's going to be some prescriptive passages passages that are on the nose talking about what it means to be parenting like raise Mm -hmm. your children in the fear and admonition of the lord i've mentioned ephesians quite a bit but also the examples you see in scripture looking at like Mm -hmm. the pictures of what do you see with samuel samuel the prophet of the lord who in the example of Eli that he served under, he kind of inherited some of his traits, and Samuel's sons did not inherit oh. Samuel's godliness. Or you look at David, and you see a man after God's own heart, but yet his sons did not carry on that legacy. You know, But then you see others who, where you do see that legacy passed on. For instance, you see 
my sons and I were reading in Acts and we we're talking about the seven, the disciples of the Lord, the mm-hmm. deacons who were selected to serve. And you have Philip, who was the evangelist. And as you come later in the book of Acts, you realize that this man, Philip, was not only a deacon, but he was also a man who was a great preacher and, and um, evangelist for the Lord. But he also had a family full of daughters who were prophetesses. Interesting. You know, so there is a legacy that's running through this man's life. You mm-hmm. know, we see that, and you could you could go on to many other. You could even see it in Paul, for instance, who was not married and had no physical children, but he had numerous children in the Lord. Right. And he was dedicated to seeing them come up. Hmm. And, um, you know, look into examples like that. went through like, the uh, agony of childbirth. He even yes. used that metaphor. Yeah, like, even even the maternal-like yeah. instincts. There, yeah, yeah, I'm good. going through this agony for your sake. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I would say that that is the number, If that's the mind you have to, to really get into. That's hmm. where you get your marginos. But then... I'd say a book that's been helpful for my wife and I, one, just on like kind of the nuts and bolts of disciplining young boys because young boys need that. They they are full of energy and full of pathos and um, mm. you are not called by the Lord to drug them up into oblivion. Do right. not do that. I am no medical professional by any means, but mm. I am thoroughly of the opinion that boys are meant to be boys. They're going to have energy. They are going to be a little nuts. And if you can't handle that, you need to change your parenting style, mm-hmm. not their prescription. You don't yeah. need to get them on a bunch of drugs <laughs> so that you can sleep at night feeling like you're in control. Right. That to me is abdication. Abuse. Yeah. And the book that we've looked to is uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. That's been really helpful with the nuts and bolts of of kind of the heart behind discipline. Nice. Discipline in, in terms of correction, but also discipline in terms of structure for children to give them an environment that makes them healthy, mm-hmm. uh, gives them security, gives them structure, because in a lot of ways, that's sometimes the best thing for children. Um, in this weird era of free-range parenting, mm-hmm. um, I think it should be blatantly obvious to anybody who's tried that, that structure has structure just kind of shows up, whether you want it to or pretend that it's not there. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to exist structure in some inevitable. form. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, another book that's been big for us is um, is a really tiny book. It's it's really basically just a lecture that's been put to print by a man named Joel Beakey, B-E-E-K-E, called Family Worship. And it is a very simple primer on what it looks like to lead your family in discipleship, nice. to lead your family through reading the scriptures, through praying, mm. through worshiping the Lord together. Um, and it's... It's been one of those books that I've I've heard um, Dr. Beakey uh, give the the talk in person, mm-hmm. and I've spoken with him about it. I've I've bought a copy that we've read as a family. I revisit it from time to time, but I've lent it out, and it's one of those books that gets wings. You lend it out to somebody, and it ends up uh, getting lent out to somebody else, and before you know it, you you never see that book again, yeah, and you don't feel bad about it. So that that's a great one. Um, I get more questions than about how do you do devotions and worship with your kids. I get that question all the time, and that book is wonderful for addressing that in a very simple and practical way. Nice. And then you alluded to it earlier, um, but we talked about the fact that I, examples, I think, are put there for us to to glean wisdom from. Mm-hmm. Look to fathers who have been successful in the past. Look to those luminaries, you know, those men who, though dead, their lives still speak. Mm-hmm. Um, look to the missionaries. Look to the pastors. Look to the saints who mm-hmm. have, you know, borne 
witness to the Lord Jesus by their faithful lives. Mm. Look to their examples, their testimonies, their biographies. And and like Ian said earlier, is I think you have to not just look at who they were, but how they became what they are mm. or what they were. Because I guarantee you that there is a faithful father or mother in the in the background there. Yeah. You know, and I could think of a few off the top of my head. Yeah. One of the biggest is Probably the missionary. I always get his first name mixed up because there's so many of these guys with this last name. But the missionary, his last name is Patton, and he went to the New Hebrides Islands. And his father, I'm not the obviously the only one to notice it, but like John Piper in his biography on this missionary, as well as Dr. Beakey, when they talk about it, they have much to say about this man's father and the effect that he had not just on his son, but through his son, on winning the entirety of the New Hebrides people to the Lord. Wow. You know, you think about something like that, like a story yeah. like that, like the faithfulness of a father mm. who may have had an impact, as far as we know, on one man, which was his son. But he released the arrow, and that exactly. arrow found its mark and went right Absolutely. to the heart of the Hebrides people. It was the yeah. kind of arrow that Rambo would shoot at a helicopter <laughs> and blow the whole helicopter <laughs> up. That, yes, it's amazing. That's um, great. So, like, for instance, Patton, and, you know, you could even think as far back as Augustine and his mother and the effect that she had on him. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think she's a good picture of an imperfect parent. The fact that even though she was not a perfect mother, she still had an impact on her son. Those are the kind of pictures and testimonies that we need to look at, especially as we're trying to be parents ourselves. We need to find those parents. I hope that this gives hope to some people who are maybe feel discouraged about parenting or or intimidated by parenting that we're you know in in this age of the cult of the experts we're just a couple of blue collar guys who are raising parenting by the grace of god and are figuring it out as we go along using you know availing ourselves of all the resources at our disposal and all the means of grace that we have and may god multiply that so I hope that gives people encouragement just to hear a couple of guys talking honestly about the challenges of parenting and the, and the importance, especially in terms of raising men, that the, the critical importance of that for our culture today. Absolutely. And uh, I, I'm going to get it if I don't say this, so this has to find its way in there somewhere. I'll but I want to give a shout out <laughs> to Manny, Rafa, Jez, Christian, and little Malia. I love you guys, and uh, I am the man I am because you guys have been given to me. I'm so thankful to God for you guys. Love you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Notion Club Podcast. This is a quote from Douglas Wilson's book, Future Men. Putting this together, we should have a pretty good sense of where we are going. We should want our boys to be aggressive and adventurous. They are learning to be lords of the earth. We should want them to be patient and hardworking. They are learning husbandry. We should want them to hate evil and to have a deep desire to fight it. They are learning what a weapon feels like in their hands. We should want boys to be eager to learn from the wise. They are learning to become wise themselves. We should want them to stand before God in the worship of God with head uncovered. They are the image and glory of God.